واجه عشق در کره شمالی فقط یک معنا داره. عشق بر رهبر عزیز. مفهوم عشق رومانتیک در کره شمالی وجود نداره. و به گفته یومی پارک نویسنده کتاب که قرار از دری برنامه روش صحبت کنیم وقت لغت نشناسیم به این ماناست که مفهوم یعنی مفهوم عشق رومانتیک نیز نمیتونیم درک کنیم. دوستا سلام به قسمت چل دوم پادکست جاری مهمان خوش آمدین در کره شمالی مردم به ای باورستن که رهبر عزیزشان است که حتی افکار مردم میتونه بخونه بنابراین مردم کره شمالی حتی از اندیشیدن میترسن به مردم تبلیغ میشه که رهبرشان چون دوستشان داره به خاطرشان گرسنگی میکشه و برای مردم به وقفه زحمت میکشه و مردم هم ای همه را باور میکنن چون همه شستشوی مغزی شدن هرگز یاد نگرفتن تفکر انتقادی داشته باشن و چیزهای مانند آزادی، حقیقت، حقوق، فردیت و غیره تا به حال هرگز وارد آگاهی جمعی مردم نشده مطمئن هستم همه ما از خود سوال کردیم که چرا مانند دیگه کشورهای دکتاتوری در کره شمالی مردم قیام نمیکنن و چرا هیچ انقلاب اتفاق نمیفته بیشتر از هفتاد سال ظلم بالای مردم و هنوزم از تعارض و انقلاب خبر نیست ولی اگر مردم کره شمالی هرگز ندانند که در اصل یک بردستن ندانند که بالایشان ظلم میشه با ضرور صورت بر آزادیشان چگونه بجنگن ایجاد یک انقلاب آگاهی میخواه آگاهی از پدیده آزادی، آگاهی از عدالت و بیادالتی و آگاهی از حقوق بشر و غیره. و این آگاهی را مردم کره شمالی نداشتند و متاسفانه هنوزم ندارند. کره شمالی در اصل یک زندان بزرگ است. زندانی که همه زندانیان بدون هیچ حقوق انسانی و بدون رضایتشان به عنوان گروگان یا بهتر از بگویم به عنوان برده نگهداری میشن. اینن مانند کشور افغانستان زیر سلطه طالب ها و کشور ایران زیر سلطه آخوند ها. در این که اولین اپیسود کتابخانه جاده میوند است موفق شدم با مهمان یا بهتر از بگویم میزبان مشترکم که آزر شد با ما همکاری کنه و کتاب مورد علاقه خود را به ما معرفی کنه گفتمان دلچسبه داشته باشم. کتاب را که در نخستین برنامه ما معرفی میکنیم کتاب In Order to Live یا به خاطر زندگی سفر دختر از کوریای شمالی است کتابی که در اصل یک کتاب خاطرات است خاطرات تلخ یومی پارک که به ما از تاریک ترین گوشه های زندگی خود در کره شمالی قسم میکنه یومی پارک در کتاب خود محرومیت ها و محدودیت هایی را که باید تحمل میکرد و فعلا به میلیون ها نفر از مردم کوریای شمالی تحمل میکنن توصیف میکنن و ما از دردناکترین و سختترین لحظات زندگی خود میگه و در کتاب خود برای اولین بار از اتفاقات وحشتناک زندگی خود و مادر خود سخن میگه و ما از فروش خودش و مادرش به عنوان بردگان جنسی در کشور چین میگه 
و سختی های دهشتناک روانی و جسمی که مجبور بدن تحمل کنن حرف میزنن تایی که مسیرش بالاخره به کره جنوبی و آزادی میرسن یومی پارک که خانم جوان است و انوز دهه دوم زندگی خود را میگذرانه سختی های را تحمل کرده که اده بسیار کم از مردم با او آشناستن هر کس دیگه اگر یه مزلم باید تجربه میکرد شاید به زندگی خود خاتمه میداد اما یومی با همه سرسختی های تکاندهنده گذشتهش هرگز خود را شکست خورده ندانسته و نمیگذارا شرایط زندگی سابقهش در چین و کره شمالی هستی شتعین کنه با وجود تمام اتفاقات بده که برش در زندگی اتفاق افتاده هنوزم با خود قول داده که برای ساختن یک زندگی بهتر هیچ وقت دریغ نخواد کرد یومی پارک امروز یک خانم موفق و یک فعال حقوق بشر است و با یک اراده فولادی تلاش میکنه تا توجه جهانیانه به سیستم استبدادی و سرکوبگر حال حاضر کره شمالی جلب کنه اگر از شنیدن برنامه های مورد علاقیتان لذت میبرین و علاقه دارین که برنامه های بهتری را خدمتتان پیشکش کنیم پس لطفا لایک و سابسکرایب فراموش نکنیم همچنان تشکر میکنم از شنوانده عزیزی که لطف میکنن و برنامه ها را با دگه دوستا به اشتراک میگذارن خب و حالا پیش ما و ای هم اپیزود اوله کتابخانه جاده میوند با مهمان دوزاشتنی و ویژه یافته First of all, can I get you something to drink? Oh, before saying hello. Uh, sure, what do you have? Well, I got some tea, coffee, wine, even champagne, actually. So um, I've also got something stronger, if you fancy that. I've got some whiskey here. It's almost, uh, it's almost like a bar in here. <laughs> well, for this drink, I think we should get uh, something stronger. Let's go with whiskey. Okay, perfect. Let me uh, make you a drink. It's a heavy book, so let's go with heavy drinks. You know what? Fully agree. All right, so here's to your health. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, so this is our very first book review. Uh, first of all, welcome on the show. Um, show that I have named Katafani Jodi Maivand. which I think was your idea initially, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, it translates as Jodie Maiwan's library. And um, so thank you for doing this. Um, I have to say it kind of feels strange. I'm not sure exactly why, uh, since, you know, we have been discussing books before. But this feels a little funny, though, I have to say. It um, might be that there are mics in front of us and we are recording the conversation. Although there is no audience here with us, but it somehow feels as if um, our listeners are actually somehow present, no? 
Um, also, I must remind listeners that uh, at first you were not really ready to um, come on the show. You were a bit hesitant and uh, you thought it was a bit silly, um, but then something happened and uh, luckily you uh, changed your mind, uh, for which obviously I am very much grateful. So having said that, I think we're all ready uh, to rumble. Uh, ready to review and discuss our very first book. But before we introduce the book, uh, perhaps uh, you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and what actually convinced or persuaded you to uh, do this with me. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here, Maivant. I have been a fan of uh, Jade Maivant since day zero. Um, what convinced me was, well, you did... Um, but I think mostly uh, I've been listening to your podcast for now more than a year and uh, I feel the ideas you share are worth discussing and, and discuss further and of course as you know I'm a very yeah you could almost say fanatic reader um, and these stories and and, and books and, and people they actually convinced me to come on this show and tell your listeners about them. It's quite an extraordinary world. As they say, reality is stranger than fiction. Well, with Kitab Khone Jadi Maivan, we're going to explore that, aren't we? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope as much as possible. So thanks again for doing this. I mean, You're welcome. I really appreciate it. And about myself, um, how about we keep my identity as mystery for now? Not a mystery guest. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, because that's what I saw you put in on your Instagram post, right? That's right. But I was also thinking that uh, you always talk to Chanel and Aziz, and that means translated in English, dear listener. And let me be the Chanel and Aziz, so you can call me that for now. <laughs> okay, Chanel and Aziz. Um, so, by the way, I mean, listeners uh, may wonder why we are doing this in English and not in Farsi. Do you have a convincing or compelling explanation for this type of blasphemy? Well, you spelled the bean about my identity since I know Farsi, but that is very true. We could have done this in Farsi. I find Farsi or Dari a very beautiful language. But this book, uh, which we're going to discuss today, I've read it in English. And I want to make sure that I do justice to her story. Now, it's a little spoiler alert. Her story is a story about a very brave girl from North Korea. And I read the book in English. She's written it in English. Right. And uh, and maybe some sometime in the future or next episode, we can do it in, in Dari. Yeah. Uh, and, Sounds uh, good to me. Yeah. And as your first, I think it was the first episode of 2022, you said that you wanted to discuss Shahnama. <laughs> I'm keeping yeah. you up to that, and we can discuss Shahnama and yeah. Farsi. Oh yeah, that would be that would be incredible. Um, and who knows, you know, we we might try that some sometime in the future. Uh, but for this episode, I mean, uh, let's now turn to the book. Um, so tell us a little bit about this. What is the title of the book, and who is the author of the book? So the book I've chosen for our very first episode is called "In Order to Live." is by Yomi Parker. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but I think it's Yomi. Yomi, Yomi, Yomi Park. Park. Yeah. Um, I think I first 
heard about her incredible story on Jordan Peterson's podcast. Um, and then I believe she also did a number of interviews on various other podcasts. Um, it's probably one of the most harrowing stories um, I've ever heard, um, but also one of the most inspiring stories, right? Um, so maybe I should ask you, what is the book about? Can you give us a short summary? Let me try to give you a summary without telling too much so your listeners actually go and read this book. Yeah, and please do say spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> Whatever applicable. But in order to live is a story of an ordinary, not Korean, but quite extraordinary and brave girl, Yomi. It's her memoir. Uh, it's a book about the lives, her life, but the lives of millions of people in North Korea. The conditions, how the society works there. And I can tell you, it's quite apart from anything we've imagined. Uh, a lot of time in the book, I had to pinch myself and say, is this real or am I just watching a Tarantino movie? But then she, at only age 13, she makes a decision to move or escape from North Korea. And the only way to escape from North Korea is via China. Mm-hmm. And so this book is actually about her journey from North Korea to China. And she also sheds light on the Chinese government, but also of the human trafficking market that is there, which is quite, I would say, emotionally uh, exhausting because it's the worst kind of treatment you can give to humans. Mm. Basically, North Korean girls are dehumanized and they're only used for sexual slavery, exploitation. But her, uh, so she decides to do the escape with her mother, actually with her mother and her sister, mm-hmm. but due to circumstances, she can only manage to get out with her mom. Mm. And she is only how old? She's only 13. Yeah. So at so the age child. of, so young, and at the age of 13, she has to make the most difficult adult decision that I think a 56-year-old will hesitate to make, but she makes them on the go. Yeah. But her journey continues. So this book is a complete uh, book of her journey. So it continues from China. So as I said, the human trafficking, sex slavery, how girls are exploited, how she's exploited. So mm. she till she finds some kind of, but it's also about a relationship between her and yeah, I don't, I don't know how to, to describe this relationship. Should I say her smuggler, her oppressor? Mm. Her lover, her husband, but about a man. Uh, where who's, This is someone she met in China? Yes, yeah. so this is the first man that uh, basically tricks her to stay with her. It's one of those, uh, not the first tire of a uh, smuggler. So you should imagine that in China there is a hierarchy of smugglers. Mm. So this guy is a little bit higher up in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And she actually lies about her age in order to survive with him. Yeah. Well, she's 13. I think she says she's 16 correct. or 18. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, correct. Uh, but and but her only goal is, and the, the reason before we judge her, the reason she does it, it is only because she wants to buy her mom back from slavery, which he had sold her to. Yeah. So it's a very, very complicated, uh, well, not really complicated, but I would say a very goosebombing story of 
of her and her mom. But then finally she makes her way to uh, to South Korea. Yeah, to freedom. <laughs> well, not entirely, because there goes also a lot of stigmas and how they treat actually the the North Korean refugees. It's it's maybe not as good as we imagine it. But the book is, and then finally she makes her escape to 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 America. Yeah. But the book is also about so it's about the darkest side of humanity, but it's also about how she finds hope in the most hopeless situation. Yeah. And how education and books actually help her. Yeah. No, we're going to talk about that a little bit um, uh, down the road. Um, But it's really a very remarkable and inspiring story. I mean, um, it, it seems like her memoir showcases the strength of the human spirit. Um, you know, this is how I see it. It's essentially a young woman's incredible determination, basically, to, to survive and kind of never give up. Uh, so who is the book for? I think the book is for everyone, to be honest with you. It's a North Korea is a part of the world which we don't know much about. It's completely detached from the world. We all know it's a giant prison, but we all assume that maybe the conditions are not as bad as we imagine. Mm. But they're actually even worse. Let me tell you this. And I think this book is for any, any person who believes in humanity, who like she needs to be hurt. Like her, there's millions of girls and boys who go through journeys, not only from North Korea, but refugees in general. Mm. And a lot of them don't have the courage to tell the story. We're going to discuss more about the culture later. Yeah. But this book is really for everyone. And I would say especially for feminists of all gender, huh? because this book is about a really brave young girl. Yeah. But since we, you know, we we seem to be so privileged in a sense, you know, where we live here in the West, what do you think about that? I mean, that was my second point. I think also that sometimes in the West, we tend to take things for granted. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. I see today a lot of young people jumping between educations, reading, studying this for one year, and then didn't feel like it next year. They don't really think about how privileged we actually are to live in a society. Would you say that we are in the West, it's not lack of choice, but it's the overwhelming (laughs) amount of choices that we have that makes life even... Correct. But also, you mentioned a very interesting word here, choice. Yeah. We have choice here. Um, In North Korea, there is none. Just the fact that uh, take your most ordinary chore of the day... um, I'll tell you a spoiler alert for the listeners, but that was something that really touched me. So her mom gets sold to to slavery. And Yaomi is okay with that after a couple of hours and goes out to with the people who have sold her mom to slavery just because she can have oranges. And she sees oranges for the first time in her life are kimchi. Um, yeah, she she, men- she mentions that you know she uh, every single item food item that she sees for the first time in China she thinks you know what I made the right decision basically to even stay in, in in slavery and be sold off as long as there's food and I can actually eat because it's I think it's the first time ever in her life that she tastes something like you know uh, 
certain fruits or whatever whatever she's uh, is, she's having there but. absolutely correct so just to tell you that no so she i think strawberries she sees for first time mm. but oranges they used to have oranges and not korea there used to be one for a family of five one orange and like just the things we take for uh, for granted in, in the West, I think we should really read this book and rethink our own life. The amount of food we throw out. Yes, the waste. And she mentions it, I think, exactly. you know, the, 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 the amount of waste uh, in, in, in places like China when she enters there. She says, you know, people are eating things, but then they're throwing away. How come, you know, there's exactly. so much waste and uh, th this never happens in North Korea? No, 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 it doesn't. But we, but this book is, so this is the part which I think you can add to your life. And I can definitely t tell you uh, that this book changed something within your heart. You don't know what, but it's going to change because it's such an honest, uh, honest way of actually telling her story that's that's quite powerful another thing it's important to read this book is to get an understanding of the ideology when it's it's actually realized in the west we also have a for some reason a very romantic idea of communism uh, we don't have that about fascism we know that fascism because i think we felt it here during second world war right but about uh, communism, we have this uh, romantic idea. Well, I don't have it. I, you know, <laughs> I, I actually was born uh, while the country was still um, under occupation, uh, and uh, a, a regime very similar to what was happening and what is happening in North Korea was in power. So, I, I have, you know. <laughs> no, I think uh, for us Afghans, that at least most of us, hopefully, that. Uh, bubble is busted maybe I, you can say that our parents maybe are you know our um or we ourselves we we never really went through fascism as such but you know we went through something very similar the country went through something very similar uh, uh, you know under the name of another ideology and a different is, ideology but where people suffered you know. that is correct back to your question this book is for anyone who's interested in uh, and strength of education and a woman and human dignity, bravery, courage, but also about what happens once these very romantic ideologies are realized in societies. What happens to the former around the corner? This isn't really a book. <laughs> you know, you, it's a page turner, yes, but it's not really easy to digest, I would say. But uh, nevertheless, you came up with this specific book. Didn't you? So why is that? I mean, you already mentioned that it's quite important to, you know, tell her story because she, you know, she wasn't able to do uh, or she wasn't able to tell her story before because she was in prison, basically, in North Korea. So she got out and then she was able to tell this story to the rest of the world. But I mean, you could have come up with any other story. I mean, why this one specifically? Well, that's a good question. And as you know, when you proposed this for first time, I think a year ago, um, I had a lot of time to think about. But I think um, her story talks to me and to countless uh, refugee kids, actually, who makes these journeys and who has to get into adulthood way before the time. Well, actually, um, I think I went through something similar, but very different. 
get me right, the journey. Um, and I think that her book, her bravery, her courage kind of got me. She's the voice for a lot of voiceless. We have a lot of refugees who go through even worse conditions, but without without ever, ever getting a chance to tell their story. So this book is a little bit um, hard but book for me. It's definitely one of the most difficult books to discuss, especially on first episode. But I think her story is important, and I think we have to be aware of it. Yeah, so let me ask you about that, actually. Why is it important that people know not only about Yomi and her story, but also about North Korea as a country? How much do we actually know about North Korea? That's a good question to ask ourselves. It's a country that's detached from the whole world, but it's a good example to understand what the impact of a dictatorship is. In North Korea, it's not enough that governments only control the basic things they can control, so such as where you work, what you say, what you do, who are you with. But they want to control something they want to more control close to you. No? Not even only your thoughts, they want to control your emotions. And I think that is very, very essential to the world we live today to understand. Would you say they are being brainwashed from very early on? <laughs> <laughs> For lack of better word, brainwashed is the right word, my one. But yes, of course they are. They are being brainwashed and they are they're dehumanized from the moment they're born. And there is only one human family. Uh, that, that's, of course, the, 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 the Kim's family. Mm. And there is only some subhumans, that is anyone who's an elite. Anyone else's life doesn't count for anything. What do you mean by there are people who are considered subhuman? Well, anyone below Kim, even his wife, is subhuman. So you have like this hierarchy of um, classes? Should I see it that way? I mean, <laughs> yes, correct. That is, uh, classes is part of it. But it's also, it's not on, when we say classes, we think a lot of about how Marx, uh, Karl Marx or uh, Pierre Bourdieu made, are defined, defined classes. But this is a whole new definition. This is a definition of classes, basically, uh, you could even say class of species, is how much you need as someone in elite, a kid in elite is important. And then you have the more, urban areas of North Korea, such as Haisen, where she's from. where This is more the countryside, right? Where she's the, born. Correct. It's close to the Chinese border. Mm. So that is really, I think we should notice, but we should also notice because we have some countries who are on their way, such as Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I had a question about that. Yes. So I was thinking, you know, uh, while we were talking about North Korea I, I wonder whether there are any parallels to be found with a country such as Afghanistan and, and even Iran, right? And what is happening today to the Afghan people under the Taliban regime and also to the Iranians under the Ayatollahs? And I, I really wonder, are there any parallels to be found there? And I, I mean that especially with regards to women and girls. Oh, there's quite a lot. So the first one, we should know that it's a centralized government. So the government controls everything. It's a corrupt government. And as I mentioned earlier, there's subhumans and then there are completely dehumanized people. I think North Korea 
have reached the state that Taliban wants to uh, achieve. Control every single emotion of every citizen. And Iran has been trying for years and has also managed to succeed if you look at the recent history. And they have, of course, the common dictatorship traits in uh, in common. Do you think they look up to North Korea, both these regimes and Afghanistan? Of course, I think so. But they also have, you should also think they have in common. So what do they have in common, these three countries? North Korea is a non-religious state. And... uh, Afghanistan and Iran is Islamic State of Afghanistan and Iran, right? Both used their ideology, which is communism and religion, to oppress, especially women. And we may ask, why women? And why not men? Well, men are also oppressed, can be right? It's not that it's yeah, a but paradise. Why are they men. focusing on women so much? I mean, I think the reason is. Well, with religion, that's how it has been for 2,000 or about 1,400 in the case of Islam years. Actually, there is another really great book I've read, uh, The Invisible Woman, which we may discuss one day on this podcast. And there, well, she is a little bit more optimist than I am, and she says it's rather just because of better lack of judgment. Mm. But there is no freedom or there is no way of describing human woman as human equal to man but not even equal to any human women are just and both religious they're used for work because they do work huh? they're used for sexual exploitation they are responsible for men's any behavior actually a fun fact about north korea do you know that in uh, tank stations in north korea they make sure to hire the most beautiful girls and why is that because men who has enough money to have a car in north korea are uh, elite and they need something pretty to look on and probably rape and exploit and That is also another fun fact. Do you know that Kim, he actually chooses girls to be in some kind of, I don't know if I should say harem. He calls it his army, but it's not really an army. (laughs) And I think... He's he's more the sultan of North Korea. (laughs) Correct, if we should put it. But if I'm not wrong, that same thing is happening with Afghanistan, where uh, Taliban came and they... Married off girls down to the age of 13 or 9, I think it was, where they forced girls to be the wife of their fighters. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Like, that's what I'm they sorry, do now. But girls, kids actually is the right word. Yeah. So there is a lot of similarities. Yeah. Now it's it's really heartbreaking to see what's, um, what's happening in Iran, right? Um, recently, a girl named uh, Masa Amini was uh, arrested and brutally murdered by this morality police um, after they accused her of um, violation of the country's dress code, which require women to wear head coverings or hijab. Uh, you know, this whole metamorphosis of Iran has been so radical. I mean, before Iran's so-called Islamic revolution, women kind of largely dressed as they pleased, right? The way they wanted to dress themselves. But um, in 1979, all all of that slowly changed, and by ni- by 1983, the hijab actually became compulsory for all women and girls. Uh, and I think that was over the 
age of nine. And after the Islamic Revolution, women, you know, have been unfortunately arrested and they have been harassed by the morality police as well as the general public. Now, the same thing happened in Afghanistan, as we already mentioned, and this was in the 1990s uh, when the Taliban uh, imposed the burqa on all women. But before we get back to the book, can you perhaps tell me a little bit about how you think about this so-called modesty culture? You know, what do you, what do you understand under this term? Does that, what does that mean? I mean, modesty and modesty culture. I think in countries such as Iran and Afghanistan, the modesty culture is, first of all, uh, only for women. And it is basically, it's a worldview which says that a good woman is a modest woman. Now, what do we mean by a modest woman? Is it someone who's super humble and sweet? Not really. It's someone who covers their head according to the guidelines which government has decided. Mm. It's someone that has no agency of her own. Even her name, as you know, in African culture or in, uh, in, in Iran as well, you're wife of someone or mother of someone. So your all sense of individuality is taken away. Another thing this modesty culture in these countries uh, basically sexualized women down to the age of nine. They not only sexualize them, but they also keep them responsible for men's behavior and their inability to control themselves. Hmm. And Treated as lost objects, yeah. Correct. And imagine... When I say this, it almost sounds ridiculous, right? Imagine you're keeping a nine-year-old kid responsible for a 56-year-old man's behavior. And the modesty culture, it's also viewed in this country that if you're harassed or raped, it's because you're immodest, um, not because that the, the, the person was not able to control themselves. At the end of the day, you know, in countries such as Afghanistan, how many times... Since actually even before Taliban take over, that women were forced to marry their rapists. That was viewed as a good thing. That was viewed as the right thing to do and it still is to, today. As a, as a modest thing to do. And a modest thing to do. And women had no way of saying no because, hey, her virginity was gone and she was worth nothing. So a girl's and a woman's worth is basically her scarf and her virginity and purity, if you could put it that way. And also one more thing to add on, Maivan, on Masa Amini and the whole hijab discussion, that the discussion has never been about hijab. The discussion is freedom of choice. The discussion with Farhunda, who was killed by the entire city of Kabul. Wasn't she modest enough? Wasn't she modest enough? She, I think they said that she had burned the Quran, right? Yeah, well, they, they accuse her of being that immodest right <laughs> yeah and for that she deserved to be chased around the whole city and killed yeah by a mob it was not only by the mobs it was also by yeah well it is a mob behavior but it was by i don't know a random truck driver who happened to just pass by and thought well it's fun let's drive over her and i also sometimes see articles here and there and some ideas that government should uh, force women to take off their hijab and that's as wrong as it is. I mean, 
hijab is a headscarf, a woman should have a freedom of choice to wear it or to not wear it. And we are, of course, going to, knowing you, we're going to discuss the freedom of choice a little bit further, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, well, I, I think, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, what you're saying is that women deserve equal rights under the law. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? And and, and they're not inferior to men. Men and women should have equal rights, you know, and, and women should, as you already said, I mean, they should wear or not wear whatever they want. I mean, governments should stop forcing women to wear the hijab or take off their hijabs. I mean, it's none of their business, right? Uh, it's all about freedom of choice. You know, I'll tell you a fun fact. You know, the difference between men and women are within other species. So within, for example, chimps and monkeys. There is no other species in the world that views one gender inferior or superior to another one. Yeah, no, this is this is absolutely unique to the human species, right? Correct. I mean, the way we treat each other and the way we um, look at each other from a gender perspective, you know, we give each other these roles and um, yeah, no, there's a lot of that going and on. And also, the human you mentioned population. that what the similarities are. One of the similarities is also that these countries are extremely backwards and uh, poor. You know, one of the main reasons is that women do not have equal opportunities. I mean, they have basically erased 50% of their populations as, you know, like that's that's a, that's a huge workforce right there. Yes. I mean, they can contribute, right, to the economies. Of course. They're not right now. So. I mean, look at the West, what happened when once women started to contribute. Yeah, so you can also just sum it up and say that they are held in that condition based because of uh, their government's corruption and heartless um policies but it's also a backward culture so they do not view women as let's let me put it this way that 2000 years back how we viewed women in the west that's how women are treated in the in the yeah. areas of you know the i world. can i can actually hear almost some of the feminists right now <laughs> who are listening to us and they're uh objecting to what we just said i mean you know we just agreed that we should not think about the world and about human beings as in this group way of thinking right group think which is oh one one group is superior one gender is inferior and things like this but what you just said about a backward culture when you say that you immediately also say i think that we have this hierarchy of cultures and values, right? So we have a specific country with a specific culture, which you would consider a lot more backward. Now, some feminists, especially Western feminists, I mean, they, they tell us that the hijab is, in fact, liberating. And they, they would say, they would promote and praise women for wearing the hijab. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, before I share my thoughts on this, uh, let me go back to where you said about a uh, hierarchy of cultures. I don't believe there is a hierarchy of cultures. I think every culture is beautiful. However, every culture should have, women should be equal to men. Every culture should have the basic human rights, right? So let's just double click and think about what we mean by culture. What is culture? Is culture the amazing food and beautiful music? Yes. 
that case, then I don't think any culture is superior to others. Is the culture um, kindness and tenderness of the hearts of the people, the commoners who live there? Then I don't think any culture is superior. I think you find that in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Denmark, in the Netherlands, anywhere you mention. But all this culture and every culture in the world should ingrain human rights in them. When they don't do these things, right? Suppose in a country such as North Korea, where there is no notion of human rights, according to you and the way you just described what culture means, do you really think that they lack something from a cultural perspective? Well, North Korea is a little unique example because yeah, then the question goes, is the culture government or is government a part? So that, that is a little unique. Uh, I mean, doesn't doesn't the authorities of a specific country or the government kind of mirror? It's a mirror image of that country's people and their culture because they gave rise to a specific form of government and a specific way of leadership and the way they are being governed. Um, yes, if that's a democratic choice. But in countries like Iran, you see, that's an issue. They took over, Taliban took over. Well, so how come then that some, some countries are democratic and some countries are not democratic? I mean, why is it that specific cultures actually gave birth to dictatorships? It's a very thought-provoking question. In my view... I don't think it's certain cultures who gave birth to dictatorships. I think there is a tipping point where it's basically the wrong person at the wrong time. So think of Hitler in the 1930s, how he came. Was it the German culture who gave birth? No, it was the conditions. It was after Second World War, we were going through economic crisis. Well, the and the and whole he, of Europe went through a, a crisis. Why specifically Germany and Hitler? Well, it it takes one psychopath to be in the right place, let's put it that way. But also bear in mind that the difference between Hitler and, uh, and let's say, Taliban is that Hitler was democratically chosen. <laughs> Taliban was not really democratically chosen. So we may actually double-click and, and I have so that's, to... So that's a danger with democracies. <laughs> there is also a danger with democracies. Uh, but I have to kind of push back and say, no, I don't think there's hierarchy in cultures. I think that culture and, and government and, and some areas of the world are quite different. And in places where they have merged into to like closer to each other, I think those are the more successful uh, cultures. Mm. And... Uh, and what was your second question? Yeah, so no, about the feminists uh, who are very, very angry at us right now, especially the, the Western-oriented or Western feminists uh, who are telling us that the hijab is in fact very much liberating, right? And they, they are um, they're promoting it and they're praising it. They're praising women for wearing the hijab. What is really your thoughts on that? Well, I have to ask you, what do you mean by the Western feminist? I think you're a feminist where you, a feminist is someone who believes in equal rights for women, men and women, who is fighting for that and who is very vocal. And when I say equal rights, we may have be in a different process and somewhere in the world where we say, okay, here you're allowed to educate yourself. But hey, do we? does woman really have an equal saying when it comes to 
their salary? Do 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 get paid equally? So I I I I have to take that notion, and when we can discuss it in another yeah, podcast. No, that's absolutely fine. I I just wonder what do you think about this about the people? Just forget feminists. I mean, mm. people who would say, you know what? I when I look at hijab, I see a symbol of freedom, liberation. You know, ownership, cultural pride. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or of course, uh, that could very much be the case. But you should always ask yourself one question: What is the consequence of taking off the hijab for that woman? So, in countries such as Iran, it's there's millions of girls who view their hijab as their oppression. Basically, is it for them liberating? Not really. But there's also girls who wear hijab out of really free choice. And when I say free choice, you should also think about the backlash you get from your family, not only the government, from the community. Are you being stigmatized and are you socially rejected? And the same question applies if a woman chooses to wear hijab or any other hair accessory or uh, a belief, right? But you should also bear in mind that the countries which we are talking about, Afghanistan and Iran, women are fed up with the morality police. And that's the thing. And we uh, touched upon it a little earlier about morality police not only controlling your what you eat, what you do, where you work, but also your thoughts and emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're trying to do. And any woman and girl who do not apply to the rules of what they're being told are killed. Like Masa Amini, like a girl called Nadal. We already forgot about Nadal. She was actually killed. Yeah. And not and also let's not forget Farhonda, right? Of course, Farhonda. Um so initially I don't think the discussion uh is about hijab or religion. It's actually about women's lo- right to live and choose and not being told by the morality police and by morality police I mean the official and unofficial one the official one is the one appointed by the government but mm-hmm. there's also an unofficial one just the general public not only general public but all your family yeah what to do what to wear relatives family friends exactly the wider community exactly yeah. so it's it's they are as much controlling you and you know your identity as the governments are right in these countries. Exactly, and to to sum it up, yes, hijab can be liberating, can be a a, a piece of you that you have found and you wear it with pride. So would you say we shouldn't condemn it, but we shouldn't also praise it, and we should just let it be a choice? Exactly, it is a choice of anyone, and I'm more than happy, and I have friends who wear hijab and and have the most beautiful views, and they really do it, and they're actually feminists on steroids, if you could say. They really believe in equal rights. They're well aware of their own situations. It can be liberating for one woman while it's oppression for another one. I have friends who wear hijab, and they have done it by their own choice, and we have had these long discussions about it, who are a feminist, if you want to use that word. But at the same time, there's also girls like Nadal who's being killed because their hijab is not according to law. So it's not liberating our oppression per itself. It's just a woman who wears it. It's like a red dress. For one woman wearing a red dress, it can be liberating, powerful, bold. For another woman, it could be oppression, insecurity based on the choice of society and other people. 
but the difference is obviously that some, but hijab uh, and these headscarves, they are very much religiously tinted. Their motivation, you know, it's coming from a religious perspective, if you know what I mean. So have- if, if we had a religion that would require women to wear red dresses and women would actually refuse to wear red dresses, then I think you would end up in a country with with the tyranny where the government is basically pushing you and coercing you into wearing these red dresses while you're not uh, okay with it and you're not uh, comfortable with it. So again, I mean, that's your your See, freedom is taken away from you, right? Correct. Wear, wearing dresses and which colors? I mean, that should be your choice. So here's the question. Should you always wear a hijab in order to be a Muslim woman? No. No, and that's what I wanted to say, uh, is that a woman can be liberated and can be free to think and can have all the choices and make the choice to wear a hijab. They can also be liberated and make all the choices and, and have the freedom of choice and not wear one. The government across the world should stop imposing their views of modesty or not modesty on women. So all the Iranian women who are currently in Iran, they're making a statement. They're even burning their uh, hijabs and, and all these things. Do you think all these women are non-Muslims or do you think no. majority is probably Muslim, but they are just fed up by being told what to wear, what to do, how to live and all these things? See, in this case, I think hijab is used to control women because it's not only the headscarf they're burning, it's being subhuman. That's So that's the symbol for them. Their hijabs are the symbol. Uh, I think, as a matter of fact, a lot of them will just go back and wear hijab if you took them out of the country. They'll be like, yeah, fine, I will. I have my religion, I, I, I will wear it, but I will do it by my own choice. Yeah. So I think governments are using religion in this case. I mean, what you just said is obviously also relevant to the book we're discussing, right, today. And Yomi has dedicated her book to her family and, and for anyone um, anywhere struggling for freedom. So she could have easily dedicated uh, the book to the women of Iran and Afghanistan who are currently struggling for human dignity and freedom and basic human rights, education, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly, even freedom to vote and, and all the rest of it. Now, she also says that people tell stories in order to live, right? Which is a very powerful statement. So tell me a little bit about the author. Uh, you already touch upon it a little bit, but, you know, her childhood and her upbringing, her family, all these things. So, Yaomi grew up in North Korea to the age of 13 in a city called uh, Haisen, close to the Chinese border, together with her uh, mother, father, and sister. From a very young age, she's a little bit, she's a little curious about why and how. In her book, she talks about the darkest side of humanity as we talked about earlier but she also talk talks about hope she sees the most kindness uh, action of humans in the most unimaginable situations yeah and and i think in the book she says um that she's most grateful for two things in her life right that, that she was born in north korea and that she escaped from north korea which is quite amazing and and both these events i think shaped her and and she says that she would not trade them for any ordinary and peaceful life, which is quite incredible. I mean, this is obviously very telling in a way because it, it tells us something fundamental about her character as a person, doesn't it? Correct. The fact that she escaped uh, North Korea shaped her character. 
And she would not trade that for any, as you mentioned, peaceful and uh, westernized life we have today. When we talk about young people having an old soul, we're probably talking about Yaomi. At only age of 13, she manages, I don't know where she got the courage from, but she managed to escape the horrors of North Korea and fighting her way through China. And even when she comes to South Korea. Yeah, and I think she she made a lot of these adult decisions and did a lot of bold and brave things. Basically, I mean, in order to kind of stay alive and in order to keep her family alive. And then on top of this, she she made the brave decision to also tell her story by writing this amazing book. Yomi told her story while knowing she would be harshly judged, right, because of her kind of traditional North Korean culture. Uh where talking about these you know, things like sex, sexual slavery, rape, and abuse are considered taboo topics, right? And, and this immediately reminds me of the conservative Afghan culture, where girls and women who have gone through similar horrible experiences, you know, they, they don't dare to talk about it. So, so many are afraid of being rejected, you know, blamed, and even bad-mouthed, right? And, and even condemned, um, by, by their own families and friends and, and the wider community. It's absolutely depressing when I think about it. Yes. As you mentioned, she was very adult at her own age of 13. So she rose above all of this. She was terrified, but she was brave and courageous enough to tell her story. She did it so because millions of refugees and people who've escaped North Korea, Afghanistan, didn't have the chance to do so. So you could say in that sense, she's the voice of the voiceless and an advocate of the many girls who is going through something similar. Because in the North Korean um, society as the Afghan, there's a lot of focus on purity and virginity of a, of, a, of a girl. Actually, a funny story when nothing breaks her as much as when she arrives to South Korea and she's being asked that, do you have a tattoo? And that was something she mentions in her book that breaks her heart completely. Now imagine growing up in North Korea, being sold to sexual slavery and harass, and you name it, the worst thing a girl can imagine going through that in China. But what breaks her is this question. Why Do you have a tattoo? Because in uh, China, the smugglers or the traffickers, they actually tattoo their women for prostitution. That, that's something that really gets her. So she has been dehumanized all her life. But this fact that there's so much focus on it. And if you have a tattoo, they will treat you differently than, than if you don't. Mm. And their listeners, yeah, they, your listeners have to listen, to, uh, read to the book or listen to the book to, to know if she has a tattoo or not. I'm not going to tell about that. But uh, so in the same sense, there's also a lot of focus in the Afghan culture about purity, virginity, and that a woman is... How do you say it? Uh, I think uh, the older generation always say a woman is like a white cloth. And so she tells her story and I think that's incredible. And I hope this will give more power to more girls coming and telling and sharing their stories because only by sharing their stories, they can have a voice and they can make a difference. You know, this idea of uh, what you just mentioned about this white cloth or white piece of paper, you know, nothing has been written on it. This is so such a BS, isn't it? I mean, when you think about no one, no one, 
yes, we write our own stories and we write our own chapters and books and things like this when it comes to our lives. But I mean, there is no such thing as human beings who are born and then they're white sheets and then, uh, you know, growing up, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then something happens and then that white sheet is no longer white. I mean, what is that for a nonsense? And, and by the way, we were talking about this objectifying thing. Yeah. Why, why don't we have something very similar when it comes to males? Why aren't they considered white sheets? Well, because women are reduced, their value are reduced to virginity or not virgin. That's it. That's basically what the white sheet is about. So I completely agree with you. It is absolutely BS. And it's the most nonsensical thing. And you know what the saddest part is? That is mostly women are mothers and older sisters who tell younger girls about this. So they keep thinking about being uh, either a candy wrapped in paper or being a white sheet. So that is a very BS. And that's why uh, people like Yomi Yomi Park is quite a hero, right? To be able and have the courage to tell that story because she knew that she will be condemned. Not only by uh, by the society, but also by the government. Do you know that any chance they get, they will get her? So, yeah, that's basically my view. Let's talk a little bit about refugees, because, I mean, in the end, she managed to escape the horrors, right, of North Korea and the North Korean society. And you and I <laughs> have been refugees ourselves, right? So let me actually read a passage uh, from her book, which is very telling. Um, quote, The young North Korean smuggler who was guiding us across the border insisted we had to go that night. He had paid some guards to look the other way, but he couldn't bribe all the soldiers in the area, so we had to be extremely cautious. I followed him in the darkness, but I was so unsteady that I had to scoot down the bank on my bottom, sending small avalanches of rocks crashing ahead of me. He turned and whispered angrily for me to stop making so much noise. But it was too late. We could see the silhouette of North Korean soldiers climbing up from the riverbed. When I heard about this and when I read about it, I mean, this is quite, it's very telling in a way because I can I can somehow relate to it, but also not because I personally didn't really go through all of these hardships like she is describing in her book. I mean, it's obviously heartbreaking, but I also know that a lot of people, a lot of families have gone through very similar conditions, right, in their own lives as refugees as well. And I mean by refugees, I, don't, I'm, I, I do not uh, have any specific nation or country in mind. And this is very general to any human being who is leaving behind all what they know, their lives, and then they try to survive and get to somewhere where they can actually live a better life where there is a little bit of humanity. This is what I have in mind when I think about refugees and their struggles. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, this part of the book, to be honest with you, is quite an emotional one for me personally. Of course, her story is unique, but I think any of us who made our way to the West have had our part of the journey differently, but sure. And she was actually lucky to escape it alive. I'm also thinking of the millions Millions of girls and women who never made it, who never made it, who sold off to slavery until the day today, who are dead in some desert and their skeletons is going to be found someday. Is this one of the reasons that Yomi actually 
turned out to be a human rights activist right now and an advocate for all these things? Do you think that has absolutely? I think these journeys, and I know mine has as well, shapes us. It shapes our character, regardless what age. So I can tell you when we escaped Afghanistan and and then the whole journey, I was much, much, much younger. But till day to day, when I have my introduction. I'm being reminded of that because they ask me where you're from. So that question itself, and people don't realize that it gets you back there. So what she's talking about, and of course what she went through, her story is quite unique and lucky is maybe not the right word to use to, to, to go through it because no kid should go through that. But she made it, she made it a life and she made, managed to get a better life in the US later. And you said part of that, getting somewhere where there's a little bit of humanity, a lot of times you trade it with your human dignity. And that's something to think about. Whenever we are seeing refugees, whenever we are judging them that they should not come here, they should not do this, that, that we should really have it in mind that it's not an easy decision. You know, sometimes I think when we use the word refugee, we don't know who the people are behind the term refugee. It gets generalized somehow, you know. Yeah. You don't read the story of a specific refugee. I mean, the way we read uh, Yomi, right? Uh, Yomi Parker's story is a very specific story about a specific human being and her journey, her struggles, what they, what she went through together mm-hmm. with her family. I mean, we rarely read these things nowadays, right? When you think about it, when you read the news, when you uh, look at around the world, the way people or refugees get p- portrayed is in a very collective way. Exactly. What I've also noticed is that they're kind of dehumanized in the sense of the collectiveness. There is no sense of individuality. It's like these people are going to come and stay here and probably going to do something criminal. And now I'm not saying that's not the case. That could very well be the case. But that's, again, action of individuals. You know, I will share something about myself. So many times I've heard from people saying, you know, when we say refugees, we don't mean people like you. And that always gets me. I'm like, what do you mean by people like me? I'm a refugee as well. I was given a chance and that's why where I am where I am. Same with Naomi. She was given a chance and look where she is. But a title refugee, I mean, do you think we carry it with ourselves for the rest of our lives? I think it's something... Don't you feel at home? <laughs> I do feel at home, Absolutely. Absolutely, I do feel at home, especially, um, well, I do live with the, the two greatest love of my life, uh, first being my dog and second being my partner. So uh, if not in a city or in a country, I do definitely feel at home with them. So no, in that sense, I don't carry the, the title refugee, but the journey has shaped me. And that you, I cannot change. I wish also Iomi, she didn't want to write this book because she thought by forgetting or by not thinking about it, she could forget all the horrors that happened to her. And I can tell you that I, like millions of others, have the same thoughts and the same journey. She was just very brave in a very young age and all of us are not that bold and brave. Okay, so since we talked about men uh, treating women in this very specific way, I mean, she goes on to describe the men in her book in a very specific way. I mean, she says in the book that she kind of lost faith in humanity and especially men, and she couldn't imagine that she would ever see 
men as normal people. She could never trust them. Uh, she couldn't bear any human connection with men. It was only when she started writing this book, I think, that she refound hope in humanity and especially in men. Perhaps with a few notable exceptions, I think people like her father, you know, the men in her story are basically monsters who exploit women for gain or pleasure. It's, it's important to mention that she finds the love of her life in the United States, right? Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about this man, Hung Wei. Hung Wei is a violent gangster, but in some very weird way, he also clearly loved her. He, after all, helped her escape, didn't he? Hung Wei is a quite interesting character and an important one in her journey. He's the one who at first is her smuggler, but also tricks and manipulates and blackmails her to staying with him as his wife, but without actually marrying her. But she's also supposed to work. So she, at the age of 13, I think or she becomes 14 then, at the age of 14, she becomes the main lady who is taking care of the new girls coming from North Korea. And Hong Wai makes her a deal. So if she stays with him, he will ensure, so buy back her mother from slavery and also make sure that her father escapes from North Korea. In all honesty, he keeps his part of the bargain. So he does uh, manage to help her, her father escape North Korea and buy back her mother and they stay with him. But I think you use the word love. I'm not sure if I would use that word for, for this relationship. But yes, he, he's somehow helping her while exploiting her. So I don't know if I use the word love, but I, I understand where you get it from. It is incredible when you think about North and South Korea, in a sense. You know, they used to be a single nation right, before the war started. And, and uh, I think they are officially still at war with each other. Are these two peoples basically from the same origin, the same, do they have the same backgrounds? Yes, they are the same, but uh, miles apart. So North Korea and South Korea have the same ethnical background. They speak the same language with different dialects. However, words such as shopping mall, liberty, or even love does not exist in North Korea. At least not in the sense of we know it. Love in North Korea means the love for the great leader. The Kim family. The Kim family. Not the whole family, especially for Kim himself. So there is no sense of the word liberty or freedom. So if you don't have, and this is a philosophical question for your listeners who can think about it a little, if you don't know the word freedom, how would you know that you're free or you're not free? If the word does not exist in itself. I mean, the word, the word itself exists, but it has a totally different meaning to it, right? The way, oh, the way we would understand it here in the West, when, I, when we say love in a very romantic way, I don't think such a romantic notion of love exists um, in North Korea beyond the love or romantic love for the supreme leader, right? The Kim family and the Kim dynasty. Correct. Obviously in the book, she describes her life in the, in the beginning of the book, um, how life is for her when she's young, right? In North Korea. Um, and obviously she was quite young uh, when she escaped as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what she, how she describes her life in North Korea? 
she describes it quite in details about how it was to be a child and a young adult in North Korea. But I want the listeners to read the book so they can find out more. But she does describe her life in details. What she does, however, disclose, uh, or what, what I, however, can disclose, that she mentions a childhood or a way of growing up without any outside information. All videos, movies, series, signals are blocked. There is no... Total censorship. It's, it's total censorship. There is black markets where they can get some Chinese uh, series, but that is books that exist. And these books are absolutely uh, a, a source of propaganda. Can they access internet? No, of course not. Or they can, they lead can in a, such a controlled manner that it's better to not have internet. So she actually gives the example of um, Kim being like the sun. You, if you're too far away, you're going to die of cold. But if you're too close, you're going to die of it's warm. So a lot of elite find somewhere in the middle to be there. But they're watching each other constantly. Are there libraries? Can people read books? Yes. Yes, there is books. But books only filled with propaganda. Who tells people about what a great nation they live in. About the great progress the nation is making. While people are starving to death. And when I say starving... It's uh, in the literal form of it. Well, there is no food. But in the books, North Korea claims to be the perfect socialist paradise where 25 million people live only to serve the supreme leader. Well, she has told the story of her escape, I mean, many, many times, right? She has described how human traffickers tricked her mother and herself in China and how her mother protected her and sacrificed herself to be raped by the broker who had um, initially targeted her. Now, once they were in China, she looked for her sister uh, without any success. And then and then finally, her father crossed the border to join them. Uh, but he unfortunately died of untreated cancer just a few months later. And then like a miracle, uh, they were rescued by these Christian missionaries who led them to the Mongolian border with China. And then from there... They were able to walk through one of the most horrible deserts, the so-called Gobi Desert, where they were following, they were following the stars, right, to freedom to to South Korea. But this is not the whole story, is it? No, no. There's so much more about it. Absolutely, there is a lot in her story. But for her writing this book, or rather the process of writing itself, it helped her to process and remember. And trying to make sense of the memories that she had during this journey. Before this book, only she and her mother knew the her story. And she wanted the nation or the world to know about it. She had never told the story in details to anyone, even the human rights act activist in South Korea. She thought, as I mentioned earlier, that if she refused to acknowledge her horrible past, it will not exist or it will somehow fade away. She had actually convinced herself that a lot of it actually never happened. Because as I mentioned earlier, it's so brutal that once you think of it, you can convince yourself that it must your mind must be playing tricks on you, right? But when she realized that without the whole truth, her story and her life wouldn't have real meaning, that's when she decides to tell the story to the world. I mean, not only writing, but also reading really helped her to kind of order her world and her mind, isn't it? 
yes, actually, Yomi is quite a reader. She reads a lot. And when she arrived in South Korea, all she did was read, read, read. She read world's greatest literature from Sophie's Choice to anything she could get her I think George Orwell. I think he, she, uh, she was quite a fan of George Orwell's writings. Correct. So George Orwell's actually 1984. That was the book that opened her eyes to the realities of, uh, of North Korea. I think you've discussed this book in one of your podcasts, haven't you? Yes, that's where I compare 1984 to what is currently happening in a country such as Afghanistan and to be honest, a country such as Iran. So yes, there is a, there is an episode about that. Um, I encourage listeners to go there and listen to it. She has seen so much horror and, and humans have been so cruel to her and her family. I mean, do, do you really think she has any hope left for humanity? I mean, it's so difficult. Is she optimistic about life and about, about the future, you think? She has indeed seen the darkest side of humanity. She has seen what one human can inflict upon another. But she has also experienced the tenderness and kindness in the worst imaginable circumstances. She knows how it feels to lose part of your humanity in order to survive. But she also knows that this part of humanity is never completely destroyed, regardless of the situations. She says that despite of all hardship of life, the sparkle can grow again, only if we give it the oxygen of freedom and the power of love. This book is actually about all the choices she made in order to live and in order to keep that spark alive. Even though she takes the reader through an emotional roller coaster, reading this book fills your heart with anger, sadness, but also with hope for the future, for a better future. A hope which we are in desperate need of today. And that's also for Afghanistan and for Iran. Yeah, well, that's a positive note and a positive outlook, which also gives me hope, to be honest. And I think this is um, this is a great way to end our very first episode of Kitab Khan Ejadeh Maiband. Well, I enjoyed this and I hope our listeners enjoyed listening to us. Um, well, and I hope that we can do this again sometime soon. Um, what do you say? Can I and the listeners actually count on you? <laughs> you can always count on me, my band. I can already tell the listeners about the next episode where you're going to be on the hot seat and choose a book. And we may do the next episode in Farsi. And I've already decided what we're going to present in my next session. So that's going to be the session after the next one. And there they can look forward to listen about another remarkable human being. Can you already tell us a little bit about this remarkable human being? Well, it's about the importance of education, the power of women. And for the rest, they have to stay tuned. Okay. Well, it <laughs> seems to be a recurrent theme. <laughs> well, I think... Um, I am going to discuss a lot of women authors and their stories. I can tell you that. I think I'm definitely going to enjoy that. And I absolutely hope that our listeners will tune in and listen to these conversations because I think they are important as well. Thank you, my mysterious guest. Um, or should I say Shana and Aziz. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Khudayar Nagahdar. Can't you see the tears roll down the street?